Let's pray. Father, it is a sweet comfort and encouragement to know that our, <clears throat> our lives rest within your, your hands, within your care. Not just our lives, but the events of all things, Lord, lie within your care, lie within your, your providence, your sovereignty. And as we have been studying what your scriptures say about your bride, about the church, we want to understand and yield ourselves and submit ourselves to what it is that you have ordained the church to be and the role that you've ordained the church to play in our lives. With so much confusion and competing thoughts in the world and even within the evangelical world regarding what the church is and why we go to church and the purpose of the church, God, our desire is to know what does your word say about the church? We want to hear from you this morning. So I pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, using the truthfulness of your word, you would impart unto us very clearly, very specifically, very personally, and very practically in our lives today, what it is that the church is in your sight, the purpose and the role that the church play. Why do we come to church? Why do we gather? Do this work in us today, Lord, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am looking forward um, to continuing our study through uh, the scriptures concerning what God says about the church and the role that the church should play in our lives, the centrality of the church. Um, I think today's passage is one in particular that I am have been looking forward to as we talk about the, the unity and the edification of the church that's supposed to take place in the church um, that I think might be maybe the most misunderstood and probably the reason why church is such a low priority on a lot of people's radars and lives and what the church, um, what it is that we do when we gather together. So we gather together as a church body to worship God. That's really the fundamental reason. Um, the church exists to provide a place for biblical worship to occur. Um, and then as we gather together, what we're going to see today is the importance and the centrality of unity in the church and the edification of the church. And I think that um, again, the, and these, these two areas in particular, my prayer is that we would see clearly what it is that Scripture says regarding the, the importance of, of unity within the church body. And then the way that the spiritual gifts um, help encourage that unity and main, help us maintain that unity, as we will see in Ephesians 4 today. And this is really challenging to us, I think, because in large, we look at church as a place where we come to receive. And this is just really an overflow, I think, of, of how we generally live our lives. We are generally people that live our lives 
as receivers, we're takers. We're always looking at what does such and such offer to me. If it offers to me something that is compelling, something that is worth pursuing, then I will do it. But if it doesn't really offer me very much, then I'm probably going to put very little into it. And sometimes we approach church that way. I come to church and I ask myself the question, what is in it for me? What am I going to receive today? And I want us to be challenged by the scriptures regarding that outlook on church. And what does the scripture say with regarding to church and why we come and what we should be looking to do as we gather together? And it's specifically, you might be very surprised to see that it's very, scripture speaks very little upon what it is that you come to receive and what it is that you come to take from church. Rather, the emphasis from scripture is what it is that you are going to give, what it is that you are going to contribute, and who it is that you come to make much of, which, by the way, is not yourself. It's God. And I think this shifting of looking at church in this way would be tremendously helpful for us and really will play itself out in some very, very practical ways. So we want to look at these two components of church today, unity and edification. And it's really today that we're going to see the transition into very clearly from the universal church into the local church, because it's really within the local church that we do this thing, um, pursuing and maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And it's really within the local church that we use the gifts that God has given to us to help maintain that unity and build up that unity and build up one another. So we're really making kind of this transition this week from talking about the importance of the universal church into the local church. So we've talked about, again, my goal at the very beginning has been, I think I've been very, very clear in that my goal is that biblically we would see that we are called and we should be building our lives around the local church. And my question is whether or not First of all, is that true? How would you answer that question? Would you really honestly say my life is built around the local church that I call home? And if it's North Hills, when you say my life is built around North Hills Christian Church. And that's not, that's not, a, that's not a question of pride. It's not a question of wanting to make much of this place. It's a question of having my heart aligned with what God's heart is because I'm, if, 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 I'm, if my goal is to build my life around the local church, it means that I love the local church. And if I love the local church, I must have that love for the local church because I'm convinced that God loves the local church. I'm not asking you to do anything that God himself has not called us to do. And he loves the local church because he loves the bride. He loves the universal church. And we, so we see, if you've missed the first two weeks of this series, I would encourage you, go back and, and listen to week one from two weeks ago, listen to last week, because in week one, I really tried hard to lay out the groundwork that God's love for his bride, for the universal church, is incomparable. He loves his bride, the, the, the called out body of believers from all time. Um, he loves them intimately, personally, passionately. We see that from scripture. But that takes place in his expression of his love for the universal church within his people that are saved within local churches. And then he gives means and use, uh, tools to the local church 
to use in order to express his love and to build his people up so that they might continue to be conformed into the image of Christ. And as we're conformed into the image of Christ, we would then begin to be like Christ, and that vertical dimension of love displays itself horizontally with one another, and that's what we talked about last week. And receiving and understanding very, very clearly what an incredible love with which it is we have been loved in Christ we would then say, how can then I not show this love to those who are around me in my life? Those who are also a part of the body of Christ. And so we would express this love with one another, but love within the boundaries of truth that God's word defines what real Christian godly love looks like. And truth, God's word, plays a central, a significant role within the local church. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you know this, I don't have the freedom to get up here and just say whatever I want to say, okay? That's not my job. And as we talk about gifts today, this is one of the things this week that became very, very personal and practical to me is that I have a gifting that I would not choose, but it is the gift that God has given to me, and that is to preach and to teach. And, and if I don't use the gift, then it's the body suffers, and you need to see yourself that way. You may not have the gift of preaching or teaching, but you have a gift. And if you don't use it, the body suffers. That becomes very, very clear in our passage today. That's the horizontal expression of love. And it's within the confines and the boundaries of truth. This is what God's word says. Like, are we really evaluating our lives scripturally? How often are we living our lives based upon what I feel like doing, what I want to do at any given moment? Is God's word, the truth of God's word, really the standard of truth in my life? And am I really seeking to live according to it? That's the question we all have to answer. I have to answer that. And you have to answer that. When I come and I'm doing sermon preparation, one of my main prayers is, Lord, don't let me get on my soapbox. I've got, I feel very passionately about a lot of things in Scripture. But as I said last week, I cannot command beyond what Scripture commands. I cannot go beyond what Scripture allows me to, to go beyond. And so as we talk about the church, specifically unity and edification, on my prayers that we would be listening to what the Scripture says. So we want to notice three things today regarding unity and edification. We want to look at the roots of unity and edification. We want to look at the command for unity and edification. And we want to look at the means of unity, unity and edification as well. So um, turn with me, if you will. We'll start in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. We're going to do just a supersonic brief overview of the book of Acts, because I want for us to see that this unity and edification is not something that just arises out of the New Testament, especially in Ephesians, where we'll be um, spend most of our time this morning here shortly. But I just want us to see that this, these marks of unity and edification were sown throughout the New Testament church as it was planted at its inception and as it continued to grow. You just notice, if you know much about the book of Acts and if you read through the book of Acts, just think about what you know and what you've read and think about these themes of unity and edification. And how much would you say that the themes of unity and edification just permeate the book of Acts itself regarding Paul's missionary journeys, planting churches, what it is that he's fighting for, um, we want to look at some of these things and just get the groundwork 
laid for us this morning as we do a brief overview of the book of Acts. Um, we see in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, what it is that's described as the local church first gathers. So, so Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost. People respond. 3,000 people are baptized and respond um, with a profession of faith. And this is what they do in Acts, 2, chap Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's this, there's this, this is saturation of the idea of unity and edification between these believers that respond to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And again, it's repeated in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37 read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, this repetition, and you get the idea of <clears throat> the priority of meeting one another's needs, this unity and edification, just grounded, sewn into the very fabric of the New Testament church. And that's what makes Ananias and Sapphira's um, sin of selling their property and keeping the, some of the proceeds back for themselves and lying to the apostles so egregious. It's a threat to the unity, the cohesion, the edification that is occurring. It was their property. They had the right to sell it, and they had the right, the right to give any amount of it to the apostles to use for the distribution of the good and meeting the needs of their brothers and sisters. But the fact that they said, oh, yeah, this is all that we've made from it. This is all the proceeds and lied about it. That's the reason why they were struck dead. It's a threat to the unity and what was um, being created and happening to be a very part of the fabric of the early New Testament church. We fast forward to Acts chapter 10 and it being another crucial moment where we see unity and edification continuing to burst the boundaries of what it is that they think God is doing when Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He preaches the gospel to a Roman guard, centurion, a Roman soldier, like a, the, the Gentile of all Gentiles. And they see that salvation comes to his house too. And he is baptized by the Holy Spirit and brought into, even Gentiles are brought into this unity to what the church is 
beginning to look like as it grows and as it, and as it, as it expands. The first nine chapters of Genesis, all concern, or not Genesis, Acts, concerning all that is happening within the church in Jerusalem and with Jews having this, this unity and this edification of one another, meeting one another's needs. And Acts chapter 10 comes along and it breaks that mold and it's inclusive even of the Gentiles, essentially anybody who's in Christ is now being united to Christ and is united to those who are also in Christ. And then Acts chapter 11 comes along and the church in Antioch is established, which really becomes the main hub throughout the book of Acts. The church in Antioch is a Gentile church. And from there, Paul and Barnabas, Acts chapter 13, are sent out in their missionary journeys and they're preaching the gospel wherever they go. And they're seeing people respond to this wonderful news of the gospel. And they're coming in and they're building churches, churches in Lystra and churches in Derby and Iconium, and then eventually churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Thessalonica and Rome. And we see this multiplication going out of centers of worship being springing up because worshipers are gathering together to worship the triune God, the one that has saved them from their sin. And, but yet there's still this unity and this cohesion between all of them. They're independent in their own locations, but they all have this shared unity and this bond that they share in the Lord Jesus Christ and having salvation in him and in him alone. And this really all kind of comes together in Acts chapter 15 when the Jerusalem council makes a ruling regarding the unification of the churches, what the gospel is that should be preached, and what some components of discipleship should look like. They're looking, the, these, these Gentile churches are looking really to the mother church because most of the apostles are still in Jerusalem. And they go to them and they go, you're the apostles. You walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell us Help us to, to, to continue to grow and to walk as well. And so they make these, these rulings based upon what are the things that the churches should value. What is the gospel that is to be preached? And what are the things that believers should abstain from? And they rejoice. And they, there was this agreement. There was this unity and this edification that was going on between these churches that would disperse all around the area. And part of it is because they believed in one unified message. The Holy Spirit is the one who is at work. Clearly, though Peter and Paul and many of these other people are being used to preach the gospel, the really the book of Acts is in your Bible, it's probably titled the book, The Acts of the Apostles. It's also been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who is moving. He is the one that is regenerating the hearts of the unbelievers. He is the one that is gathering people in. He is the one that is building the church, and he is the one that is planting local churches through these people. And it's all being done through the proclamation of a message. It's not one, there are not various messages based upon each location and what each per people group need to hear in order to receive salvation, there is one unified message that is preached by James, by Peter, by Paul, by Barnabas, by Priscilla and Achillo, by any of these people within the New Testament, and it is the gospel that there is salvation found in nobody else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
this is a, they are able to be unified churches because they believe fundamentally in one unified gospel message. I like the way that J. Gresham Machen says it. Christianity transformed the lives of men not by appealing to human will, but by telling a story. Not by exhortation, but by the narration of an event. It was, the, it was an appeal to a doctrinal truth. It wasn't an appeal to your felt needs and my felt needs or their felt needs. It wasn't an appeal to what it is that they wanted to hear. It wasn't an appeal to what they, who they wanted God to be and how mankind might be saved through the God that they had constructed in their own image. It was, this is what we talked about at Sunday school, right? It was a proclamation of the truth of what God's word says, who he is, and what has gone wrong with mankind and sin, and God sending forth his beloved son to save mankind, and there is salvation found, but it is only found in him. And it was this proclamation of this objective truth that when people had ears to hear, they heard, and they repented, and they confessed, and they were baptized, and they were included in the church. People were saved through the proclamation of this gospel event, through the narration of who Jesus Christ was and what he did and what he accomplished, especially in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the church has a means for unity and edification, and it also has the same goal. 2 Corinthians 3.18 I think is a wonderful summary of what it is that God is doing in the churches, what he's always been doing in the churches. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is taking all of those who confess to be in Christ and conforming them into the image of Christ. We're not all being conformed into different things. We're all being conformed into one image, and that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is unified in his goal, in his work of redemption. Amongst all people, as the gospel goes out, this objective proclamation of the truth of the gospel message goes out. People hear it, and everybody who hears it and is regenerated by it is then gathered in and being conformed into the same image. There's always been this thread of unity and cohesion all throughout the scriptures, and especially becomes clear in the New Testament. And so that now that people are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, we want to see how much of an important scripture gives us regarding this unity and edification between believers. And this is where we want to flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is probably, when you talk about unity outside of Psalm 133, how blessed it is for those for us to dwell in unity with one another Ephesians chapter 4 is probably the most well-known clear place in the scriptures that speaks about the unity that is supposed to mark the church and he does a wonderful job of stating the truth the place of and our call to maintain this unity 
But he makes this wonderful transition into really the gifting to the church to continue to um, strengthen and build up this unity that we have. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, um, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, it has six chapters to it. The first three chapters are all about what God has done for us. The next three chapters are all, how we are all about how we respond to what it is that God has done for us. And so he's labored for three chapters, emphasizing really the unity that believers have. And if you look at that, if you look at chapter two, that becomes very, very clear. Paul would say in Acts, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter two, verses 17 and 18, and he came and preached, he being Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so he's, and to those who are far off, he's talking about Gentiles, to those who are near, he's talking about Jews, and he's talking about the redemptive work of Christ that brings Jew and Gentile together and unites them into one body in the Lord Jesus Christ to which he is the head. And so then he goes on from there in Ephesians chapter 4 to encourage us and admonish us and them what it is that we should do and how hard we should work to maintain this unity. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We want to stop there for a second. You notice and you, the, the wording that he uses really highlights the unity that God has in his mind for his beloved bride and the unity that we are called to work hard to maintain. I think if we're all being honest with one another, we would admit that it is difficult to maintain unity even with other Christians over a great many issues. I mean, if anything, 2020 and 2021 really made that very, very clear that there are things that Christians will divide over, um, sometimes to a very great and sinful degree. And of, co of course, God knows this. He knows that we love our independent, autonomous opinions of things. And so he tells us, by way of example and acts, he lays out this picture of Christian unity. And then he tells us very explicitly in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are called to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He starts off with first identifying himself, right? His, I, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul is functioning out of his identity of how he sees himself. And this is something true that we all do. We are all living out of some sort of identification. However you see yourself in your mind, that is what it is that you are going to live out. So if you identify yourself primarily through your vocation, 
That is going to affect the way that you live out the rest of your life. If you primarily identify yourself as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a sports fan, as a political uh, guru, whatever it is, this is going to color and taint the way that you live your life in a very practical manner. I'm telling you. Whether or not you are conscious of it or not, or recognize it or not, everybody, each one of us is living out of our identification. And for the believer, our identity, our identity should be found firmly in Christ first. Who are you? I am a Christian. Everything that I do and say and think should be informed by my identification and union with Christ first and foremost. Paul sets this example out. I am a prisoner of the Lord. Literally, physically, being in jail, and then also figuratively. He owns me. He belongs to me, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 reminds us, you are not your own. You've been bought by a price. Man, I think, like, if, if believers really meditated upon that and thought about that, that I do not belong to myself, I am not my own, I've been bought by another, I belong to him, that would really change the way that we live. And it would really, I think, one of the first places it would affect is how we view the local church. I am not my own, right? I've been bought and I've been brought into this body. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I think he says this really well here. He says, most of our troubles arise chiefly from the fact that we are persistently starting with ourselves. We are too subjective. The moment we begin to see things in that way, we are delivered out of this miserable, morbid subjectivity. The way to cure ourselves of most of our ills and problems, right now everybody's ears should be perked up, right, because we all got issues, So he's about to tell us how to fix our issues. The way to cure ourselves of most of our ills and problems is to lift ourselves right out of this subjectivity and see ourselves as the New Testament describes us, and especially in the words, quote, ye are of the body of Christ and members in particular, end quote. You're part of a body of Christ. You are not your own. He has bought you not to be an independent, lone ranger, autonomous Christian. He has bought you to be woven into the fabric of a body of other people. All of us woven into that one body universally, but then practically woven into a body locally with one another. And we need to stop coming into church and thinking, what is it that I'm going to get today out of church? And, and I, rather than seeing myself as one who is sewn into the, li- the very fabric of the lives of those who I see every Sunday, and how can I contribute to their good and to God's glory, which we will get into here shortly, specifically when we talk about the gifting. But we need to be spiritually minded. And again, Paul reminds us, he is a prisoner of the Lord and he urges them. This, this urging is not just, hey, bro, you know, if you got some time, Show up at church and, you know, try and be nice to people and encourage them. It's hard for me to explain the degree of the command that God gives through Paul. 
in this passage. This urging is like an explicit commanding that incorporates a fervency and an urgency in it. I mean, he is saying, I am, I am telling you to urgently and fervently do this. Like, with, just pour your whole self into it. Don't just go halfway. Completely and all, pour yourself into what it is that I'm going to tell you to do. And this is what he tells us to do. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? He tells us that after that. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I want you to fervently and urgently and eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You notice that he doesn't say create. It's already been created by the spirit of God. By virtue of being in Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we already are unified. We already have this unity. The problem is, is that we don't work hard at maintaining it. And his command is explicitly strong to maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is, this is what should mark the life of a Christian. Are you humble? Are you patient? Are you gentle? All right, this is, we talked a lot about this last week, this, this horizontal dimension of love that we're supposed to have for one another. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he goes on. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and end all. You notice Paul is very Trinitarian in his theology. You see the spirit present in verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son present in verse 5, and God the Father present in verse 6. Paul is always thinking about the Trinity and essentially he is saying what he's urging is a type of unity between believers that we find in the triune Godhead, which when you think about that and if, you're, if your theology of the Trinity is sharp, you're going, no way, like no way. You're talking about, you're talking about, an, eter uh, you're talking about an eternal triune Godhead of which there has never been any separation. And needless to say, what he's saying is that that unity is what should mark the unity of the church. And then he actually helps us and gives us some criteria. Okay, well, well, what should we be unified on? I think that's a really, like, that's really the pressing question. What does this unity look like, and what should we be unified on in particular? Well, we talked about the, the, the gospel, being unified in that, but then he actually helps us, right? There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, He's saying, as you're unified, use these criteria. There's only one Lord. Who do you say that the Lord Jesus Christ is? 
if, our an if, the, if your answer is different than the biblical answer, then we don't have unity on that. There's one faith. What is the role of faith? What does the Bible teach about faith? Are essentially, are you justified by faith or by some other means? If we're not unified on that, then that's, that's a pretty big marker for unity. One baptism. What does baptism signify? What does it represent? Are we united on that? One God and Father. Who is God? Are we united on the biblical answer of who God is, the biblical truth and description of, of who God is and how the scriptures define God? These are markers of unity that we should share with one another, and that's the reason why division in the scriptures is so highly condemned. Think of what chapter um, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 say. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Why is there such a strong condemnation of those who stir up division. Well, you don't understand, we will never understand that until we first understand how precious unity is in the sight of God and what it is that he's doing and creating within his people. That's why a divisive person, you warn them once, you warn them twice, after that, you have nothing to do with that person because this is where their division comes from. They are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned. Divisive people can cause massive destruction. Galatians 5.20 tells us rivalries, dissensions, and divisions are works of the flesh. You'd be on guard against someone who is not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You'd be on guard against people who are divisive. People who so dissensions and rivalries. So again, the question for us is, are we fervently maintaining this unity of spirit and the bond of peace? Would you say that that is a descriptor of your life? Where does the command, right? This is this is God. This is not I hope you've all been reading along in your Bibles to know that this is these are not my words. This is what God commands his people to do. So the question we have to ask ourselves always is, how am I doing? And what role does eagerly maintaining this unity really play in my life? And how does it manifest itself? Right? I mean, we would love to say, oh, yeah, it is so important to me to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, well, then ask yourself the next question. How can I measurably and objectively measure that? How can I, what am I doing to prove that that's true? I think these are, they're convicting questions. They are for me. It's a matter of motives and issues of the heart, and it's also a matter of practically what I do and how I, how I live and how I behave. 
Not only that, but we see then the means of unity and edification. And this is where really Paul makes this transition into talking about the offices and the gifts as a means to encourage this unity. He would say in Ephesians, remaining in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, one Lord, one faith, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and end all, right? So he gives us this unity, but then he says, but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's looking for unity, not uniformity. We're not all supposed to speak like one another and, and act like one another and, and be to mimic and model one another. There's still a distinctiveness that God has, has, has in, remained in place for each one of us. We're each created in the image of God, but we all have uniquenesses and differences, but yet we're supposed to still maintain this unity with one another. And so then he, gives, he gets into um, the gifting in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, and then really the offices. And next week we're going to spend time talking about the offices. So verses 11 through 14 talk about the offices, but he picks this up again, this idea in verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The God has given us a unity of the Spirit. We are called to maintain, to work hard, to maintain that unity of the Spirit. But then he gives us offices and gifts that help facilitate the maintaining of that unity. And it is when we use the gifts that God has given to us that the unity of the church really becomes as beautiful as it can possibly be. Uh, turn with me, if you will, will, really quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is just going to be an overview here, but I want us to notice a few things. And it's really in this topic of unity and edification, specifically now, as we get into the gifts, that we want to focus and think very specifically about. And again, this is where the truths that apply to the universal church become very practical to the local church. We're called to maintain this unity, but we do it through the offices and the gifts that God gives to us. And where else does that take place other than within the local church primarily? And so he's given each believer a gift that is used for the good of the body. And he makes that abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, we're going to pick up in verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Again, you see Paul's Trinitarian theology there. Spirit, Lord, and Father. God being mentioned there. But he's talking about... Um, the gifts being given, and he says in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
There are a variety of gifts. There are varieties of service. There are a variety of activities. But number one, they are given by God. They're up to his sovereign decree as to who gets which gift. And, and some people have multiple gifts that they can use. But it's, it's God's decree that he gifts his people with the gift of the Holy Spirit as he sees fit. But each one that is given, in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Which means that we need to have the mentality that when I come on Sunday morning in particular to worship with people that I am unified in, that I want to edify, I'm coming in with the mindset that I've been given a gift that is good for you. And you have been given a gift that is good for me. And we all have been given gifts that are good for each other. Which means that when I step, when I'm coming in to church, my goal and objective is to worship God and to be of a benefit and blessing to those who are around me. And my own desires and my own feelings come last. Now, Imagine if each one of us came in looking to the interests and the needs of others. Then nobody, then we would never have any lack. What it is that God knows you need would be met because there are people looking to meet your needs because you are looking to meet other people's needs. We see how this works. Again, he will, he'll repeat it in verse 25. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. There are no superstars in the church. There's no favoritism and there's no partiality, and there are no unimportant gifts. Our call when we gather together is to use the gift that God has given to us for the good and the benefit and the building up of those who are around us. For the common good. And then he uses in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31, the metaphor of the body. And I think what's misunderstood regarding this is that we tend to look at the body and its many parts as something that God is building, much like we would build like an engine, like we take parts from here and parts from here and we put them all together and we make something. And that's what God does with the church. He grabs an arm. He grabs an eye, he grabs a foot, he grabs a heart, he gra and then he puts it all together. I don't think that that's a very accurate picture of what God does. If you think about the body, how does any body start off? How does an individual start? One cell. And what does that cell do? It remains one cell, but it grows, and it produces different parts and appendages, right? So it's not, like one, it's not like your physical body is composed of different parts. It's one part that it just looks different, manifests itself in, in different ways. And it's the same way with the church. It's one cell. And if you're looking at it through the eyes of redemptive history from the very beginning of that seed and that one cell that occurred right after the fall, the church has been growing ever since then. And it's not that parts are being included, it's that as that one cell grows and multiplies, it's beginning to manifest itself until it becomes what it needs to become in a finished product. 
And as it grows, some people are grown into an arm. And some people are grown into an eye. And that's why he says, how can the eye say to the foot, I don't need you? We can't say that. That's why there's no unimportant gift within the body. Because whatever part we are, whatever gift we've been given, we're all a part of the same body. That's why he would say in, chapter, in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then he'll again go on to talking about the different offices that he has created within the church. Point being here is that we are called to grow. And our growth comes about by the using and the expressing of the gifts that God has given to us into the lives of one another, which makes not being at church have really colossal ramifications. Do we understand how that connection is made? Like you've been given a gift and if you're not present, how are you going to practice your gift for the good of the body? Right? God has, okay, what we've seen very clearly, God has given you a gift, not for your own good, not for your own glory, but for the good of those who are around you. If you're not here to use your gift, how do others benefit from it? Like, you've got to physically be here first. Let's just start there. That's why missing church is, is, has colossal implications to it. We, it. we approach life as... We approach life selfishly a lot of the times, subjectively. Oh, well, what does it matter if I'm not there today? I had a rough week, I had a long weekend, just gonna sleep in, no big deal. The problem is, is that who are you thinking about? You. But if your objective to come was to worship God and to use your gift for the good of others, then you are not a part of that equation. Which means being here on Sundays is more than just showing up and being here. It's about doing what you were created to do and functioning like God has created us to function as one body. Using our gifts to build up and encourage one another now, God is certainly patient with us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. And we need reminders of his goodness and his kindness to us. But what that should do should encourage all the more a life of worship and the use of the gifting that he's giving to us for the contribution and benefit of others. It's one of the reasons why we take communion every week because we need a reminder of all the ways in which we are generally self-centered and self-focused, not God-centered, not God-focused. And this is a wonderful reminder of what it is that he, in its expression of his love for us, and in being reminded of his love for us, it would turn us from being so introspective and self-oriented towards being, practicing the truth of his word 
and living a life of worship for him and a life of good and benefit and encouragement of edification for others. And sure, I guess, do, you, do we have the mentality that when we gather together, we are here to build up those who are around us and to worship God? If that's not our mindset, we really need to think. And I would encourage you, read through Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, those chapters in, in, the, in their entirety. And see what it is that God calls us to do. We're going to partake of communion now together. And there's a reason why we do this together. Because it reminds us of our unity as a body. So this is a time for believers. This is a time of worship. This is a time of examination. It's a time of confession. But it's also a time of assurance. I mean, we're here. We've been given a gift because we've been bought by the blood of Christ. That's incredibly good news. Now it's a matter of me orienting my life to be what it should be. A life of honor and worship to him and a life of good and blessing to others around me. And so this communion time reminds us of of how Christ has done that for us and how we're then called to do that uh, for others and with others. So the elements are in the back and you can grab those, return back to your seat, you have some time of prayer and meditation and then we will partake of these communion elements together shortly.